This is an ABC podcast. Wishful thinking of the Labor Party. A shameful and pathetic attempt. This government is a government of cronies and donors. The future belongs to patriots. Chaos, confusion, dysfunction. That is such a bubble question. I'm just going to leave that one in the bubble. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Party Room. I'm Patricia Carvellis, the host of RN Drive. And I'm Fran Kelly from ABC Insiders and we are trapped in the bubble still, PK. When are we going to get out of this bubble? I don't know, this gossipy bubble that we live in. Now, you have probably noticed by now, there's no way you've missed it, especially if you are a a subscriber diehard of The Party Room, that the Prime Minister has spent the week in the United States And what a time to be there. I mean, the timing is incredible. He's been meeting and greeting with the US President Donald Trump, just as House Democrats announced they'll be launching a formal impeachment inquiry into the president. We're going to explore that whole visit in a little more detail later. But before we we go to all of that detail and what it means, let's just cover off on some of the other things happening at home in the Prime Minister's absence. China has really been the focus this week, and it has been many of our podcasts, but the Prime Minister's comments on United States soil in relation to China really aligning Australia with with the US's position, particularly on trade and holding out for a bigger deal, but also on, you know, asking China to do more on climate change, another theme, has been the huge issue here. And I see it as a really Huge shift, actually, Fran. I know we've been building up to it. I'm not suggesting it's just come out of the blue. No. But there has been, I think, a change. Well, look, we marked it here on the podcast um, a couple of months ago when the PM gave a major speech, and that's when he first talked about a gear change in the global relationship with China and in China's economy. And that's when he first started to, and we, at the time we commented, is this a shift towards the US's position within this trade dispute with China? Because Scott Morrison first started to raise this notion that perhaps China doesn't deserve developing nation status anymore, because that's a formal term within the World Trade Organization that gives a country special concessions. So in terms of trade, you can do certain things that you can't do if you're a developed nation. When it comes to the climate area, you have different levels of emissions, ambition, all of that. So the Prime Minister started talking about that, but he really ratcheted it up in the US. So there he is basically standing or sitting alongside um, Donald Trump saying that China is a newly developed nation. He started talking about it being the world's second largest economy and therefore it didn't deserve this special treatment. He used the term gear change again. And so that was really putting it out there on the global stage. We've got to change the rules because China is no longer a developing nation. China didn't like that. No, China did not like that. But Donald Trump did. Donald Trump was a big fan of that. And of course, he needs friends. And our Prime Minister provides that friendship at a time I think he really needs it. We can get into that a bit with Sarah in a moment. But What also happened is something significant in terms of the opposition and the response to Scott Morrison's positioning. Here's Anthony Albanese. Well, it quite clearly is still developing. There are pockets of China, of course, around uh, around the coast and around its cities uh, that are very prosperous. But so, so on that, you disagree with the prime minister. Well, it is still an emerging economy. Anthony Albanese's big point was: Why would you? use a loud hailer to put this message out the world when you are standing in Washington alongside the US president when these two major countries and major economies are at loggerheads. 
that's it. And uh, I hate to use this word because it's too used too often in politics and analysis, but the optics were, were problematic, I think, for the Prime Minister, and that's what Anthony Albanese was picking up on. Look, Anthony Albanese weighed in while his deputy leader and defence spokesperson, who I know you'll be talking to on Insiders on the weekend, was in China advocating for a closer military cooperation with the country. He made those remarks on the same day that drone footage emerged appearing to show Chinese police leading hundreds of blindfolded and shackled men from a train, really disturbing images of these Uyghur minority prisoners. What did you make of the timing? I, I will say what I made of the timing. I thought that was badly timed. Now they've, you know, put caveats on it. No, this is about peacekeeping missions, not sort of yeah. n- aggressive I, I mean, military these, action. Rela- these relationships are so complex, right? So we, we have relations with many, many countries which have terrible human rights records. And the job of leaders and foreign ministers is to raise those human rights issues and to push as much as Australia can to try and bring about some change. The Foreign Minister, Maurice Payne, tells us she's raised the issue of the Uyghurs on a number of occasions. Richard Miles making those comments on that day was difficult for him because it looks like we wanted to get closer to a military at the same time that the the police slash military slash communist party are oppressing and torturing some of these people. So that's not great timing, but I guess Richard Miles' point is military-military cooperation between countries is often used as a way to get more influence, to get to know the personnel at the top of these chains so you hopefully can have more influence in the way they operate and behave and change behaviour that way. So the two weren't connected, but, yes, I agree with you, the timing, not great. Not great. And the other big theme out of this trip, of course, has been climate and the, the UN Climate Summit. The Prime Minister didn't address that summit. He was critiqued heavily from many figures about not doing that. He has addressed the UN General Assembly about environmental issues, and we can talk a little bit about that. But firstly, 16-year-old climate activist Greta Thunberg made waves this week, and, and the Prime Minister has responded as a result with her, there's no other way to describe it really, a blistering speech to world leaders at the UN. You have stolen my dreams and my childhood with your empty words. People are suffering People are dying. Entire ecosystems are collapsing. We are in the beginning of a mass extinction. And all you can talk about is money and fairy tales of eternal economic growth. It was a four-minute speech, four and a half minutes, I think, but it made a huge, huge impact, as this 16-year-old girl has. I mean, she was the one who first started the school strike. She went on strike for climate change, and within, what, a couple of years, school students, as we saw here in Australia, are striking all around the world, and that followed a day of action from thousands of kids and adults. The political leaders, as I've seen reports, didn't particularly feel comfortable in that speech, some of them denigrating her, the, the president, the US president, with a tweet. Scott Morrison's response was not to take issue with Greta Thunberg and not to take issue with the kids that are protesting, but to express it differently. Like, he's worried about our children, is how he put it. Previous generations have seen uh, quite existential threats in the past, and uh, these days I think it's important, and I say this as a parent too, we've got to make sure that our kids understand the facts, but they also have the context and the perspective, and that we do not create an anxiety amongst children in how we talk about and deal with these very real issues. But it is also true that it is time for concern. It's time for action. The school students around the world don't think the leaders are acting enough here in Australia. They don't think the government's doing enough. And if you're talking about facts, then, you know, there's some um, competing facts going on here in this debate. Look, it's interesting the way that 
former Prime Minister Kevin Rudd, who said it was the greatest moral challenge of our time 10 Remember years that? ago at the UN. I mean, if you look at the ago. timing, the way he responded to Greta Thunberg. I think she represents the anger of that generation and does so effectively. It might insult a whole lot of middle-aged white guys uh, because it's not the way in which you know, we would talk or we think that's inappropriate for a young girl to speak that way. But when I speak to young people around the world, whether it's in China, here in the United States, back home in Australia, frankly, there is a rising rage. There's a rising rage and there's rising seas too. And we've just had another IPCC report this week talk about the threat of climate change, global warming on rising sea levels. I mean, this, you know, there's no doubt we are at a point of crisis and there is no doubt that the collective actions of the countries that uh, are going on to try and address this crisis are not enough, and Australia's a part of that. Quickly to the Prime Minister's way of addressing this, because he has addressed this at the United Nations. He's pivoted. He's pivoted to oceans. He's pivoted to plastics. Both of those issues, he says, are our focus. Is he, though, Fran, creating a kind of false binary or choice? I mean, he's not saying that Australia's not going to act on climate change. In fact, he's saying there's misinformation that we're being, that Australia's being misrepresented as not he doing. He the media is misrepresenting the government's achievements on this. Yeah, I wonder where he got anyway, points from there. Um, anyway, whether, leave that but there. Media. Um, leave that in the bubble, shall we say. Look, it is a false, it's, it's a false Dichotomy, um, that dichotomy. you choose one or the other. It's not one or the other. And and it reminds me a little bit of a sort of, it's a John Howard kind of strategy. You know, when John Howard came in and reconciliation was a major issue in Australia and it, the Prime Minister, John Howard, was not really very comfortable with Indigenous Australians at that point and he immediately went to what he called practical reconciliation, wanted to leave symbolism behind and he actually, that did him very well as a strategy for his decade as Prime Minister. To me, this is a bit like that. Scott Morin is saying, I want to deal with practical issues. We've got a problem with our oceans. The, the Pacific nations want us to clean up the oceans. We're going to deal with that. And we're doing what we've promised we'll do to meet our Paris commitments. But they are, one is no substitute for the other. Yeah, it's interesting the way, though, he's become quite defensive about Australia's record, making the point that, you know, we met our Kyoto targets, we're going to meet the but Paris targets. But we are under targets. pressure from other countries, and he would be feeling that, I imagine, at the UN. You know, other countries are publicly saying Australia is not doing enough. Just to change the topic for a moment, worth noting the controversy surrounding the family court inquiry bubbled away again this week. I don't know if you heard the interview with Kevin Andrews I did this week, Fran, but he's heading the inquiry. Mm. He refused to condemn Pauline Hanson's claims that women are routinely lying about domestic violence to win custody of their children. If I end up having to comment on everything that is said before the inquiry or by a member of the inquiry, then I believe that will compromise my ability to be an impartial chair of this committee. I did hear that interview. I thought it was a terrific interview. I did note that you asked him that several times and he refused to go there. And his whole excuse was, he, as we heard there, he wanted to remain impartial. Um, you know, I took heart from uh, some of what he said to you, which is he wants this committee to uh, follow the evidence and be conducted with respect and all voices to be heard. And he's really uh, hoping that women's groups and, and groups who are working within the family law system come forward and give their evidence and are treated respectfully by the committee. So, you know, he's sort of hedging on that side. 
certainly hedging. But, but why would they condemn Pauline Hanson? They just made her deputy chair of this committee. Either way, it's I understand the kind of concept he's going down, but all of the front benches asked, from Peter Dutton to Christian Porter, Matthias Corman, uh, they're the ones I can remember and even think about the way they said it, have said this statement is untrue. If it's untrue, you'd think that the, even the committee chair would say it. But let's just leave that there. Let's see how this unfolds. Family law issues are so complained about to MPs' offices. MPs say it's the number one complaint to their offices. And you know what? I've been around this place a long time and they've been saying that for 20 years. They have. It's a huge issue. And that's because, you know, hot human mess. It really is. When you get there, it's not because things have been good. Sarah James, journalist and regular contributor on ABC News Breakfast. Hello there. Welcome to the party room. Hi, it's great to be here. Now, Sarah, you're the perfect guest, and it's not because we're stereotyping you based on your accent. Of course, you are... 11 years in Australia, a dual citizen, and the accent is apparently rusted on. It's rusted on. Finger on on the pulse is all we care about, I can tell you, you you. could put me anywhere and I'd have this broad Australian accent wherever I'd go as well. But either way, our Prime Minister has spent this week in the United States. Uh, A lot of pomp and ceremony and fanfare and and fancy dinners and Mm. lots of FaceTime and and campaign rallies. Just want to get your take. Mm. How do you think it's gone? I think you'd have to call it Dickensian, right? Best of times, worst of times. I mean, all the horns, the bells, the whistles, and a whistleblower about President Trump, of course, nothing to do with Scott Morrison. But nevertheless, I mean, really an interesting situation in which you're treated, feted to all this wonderful attention. You're in lockstep and lots of things are going along with the American president. But the American president who's invited you to the country and who's thrown a lavish state dinner for you has also been the subject of an impeachment inquiry. So it put a cast up hall on things, but that notwithstanding, I still think there was a lot of good that came about for the Prime Minister. Seems to me that it's a bit like that for any leader who's meeting Donald Trump, that even within one sit-down, as we saw in the in the White House, from the footage from the White House, Donald Trump can sort of throw out all sorts of things that could explode in the on the leader sitting next to him. Scott Morrison, I think, navigated that particularly well. I did too. Then we had the um, the opening of the Pratt, the Anthony Pratt mm. cardboard, recycled cardboard factory in Ohio, and that was all terrific, a great news story, a lot of jobs created, Australian businessman, close friend of the president, but except it turned into a Trump Make America Great rally. Scott Morrison got this close, really, to be caught up in a campaign rally with Donald Trump. Would he have known that was juxtaposition was likely to happen? I think the only only thing you can say about President Trump is that's how he rolls. So to a certain extent, to hang out with President Trump is to know that there's likely to be some of that because that's all of his news conferences. They sort of turn into that Make America Great Again rally. I think that Prime Minister Morrison was really paying attention. He had on his tap shoes. He was trying to kind of dance mm, he away. He certainly just, did. Yes, to kind of step away when it got too close to that. But but it's hard to involve that because this is a president who kind of throws his arm around you metaphorically and pulls you in. He has got a huge gravitational force. That's the point, though, isn't it, of this sure. trip, perhaps? I mean, that the big arm around Scott Morrison is about, hey, China, I've got my arm around this guy. How much of the trip dynamic 
is about that, is about the US and China, and from Australia's point of view, how much of it is about us wanting to reinforce the uh, alliance and say, in the Indo-Pacific, US, you're with us. I think the Prime Minister made that pretty clear in Chicago in his speech that he expects and wants, as you all mentioned, for China to have a slightly different role vis-a-vis the rest of the world when it comes to whether or not they're a developing nation or a developed nation. So he and President Trump had really similar talking points on that. But it, And I do think, you think that's choreographed or does that just happen? Uh, well, I think that there's conversations, lots of conversations. And I think that they actually think and believe similar things and believe that there's an important relationship between the United States and Australia, that it's strategic, it's five eyes, it has to do with intelligence gathering, it has to do with safety and security, it has to do with cultural matters, it has to do with lots of things. But there's one other thing, and that is you can't lose sight of the fact that this president has his particular people he really likes. And he likes ScoMo. I mean, he really does. He, sees he said him as he a likes winner. him better than than he didn't mind the other guy, Malcolm no, Turnbull. But one, he likes this guy more. I, but you I know what? He, he likes that clear. people. So this is a bit of a segue. He seems to like leaders who come from behind because in that transcript with the Ukrainian leader that we've now all seen, um, well, he says quite. there the, the you, notes about the yes, yeah, meeting. you came from behind too. He kind of likes that. It's a narrative that he loves. It is what he rode to victory in 2016. He's now going to to portray himself in the midst of this impeachment inquiry as, again, you know, he's had all these knocks that he's taken and he's once again going to battle his way through. It's a really strong narrative for him. His base, his people love it. And it was one of the things that attracted him to Prime Minister Morrison is the fact that he was looked at as dead in the water, but instead he rose Phoenix from the ashes. The quiet Australian's narrative, same as uh, the people that voted for Trump, who essentially he thinks these are the the real genuine people in the country who who want to support these kinds of guys. Sarah, I interrupted you when you were talking about how Trump likes some people. Does that make a difference to how he then relates to it and what negotiations go on? I think it does. I think it's a personal, you know, relationships between leaders and countries are not just about, you know, facts and sums and things on a balance sheet. They're about what the relationships are like between individuals. We've seen that throughout history. And I think it is part of what works for Australia with this president. But I really want to be clear. And I think that's why we were seeing Prime Minister Morrison do the jazz hands like I'm with you and then I'm kind of tap dancing away. Uh, There's a lot between these two countries that isn't just about these two leaders and their personal relationship. But that was one of the reasons I think you saw this president invite ScoMo to the White House. Mm. And of course, like it's been a long week. <laughs> there was the rally, but it started that Oval Office with that mm. meandering, bizarre. I think it was President Trump even mentioning uh, you know, nuclear weapons and Iran. And that was where the Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, sort of grinned and someone described it. I think it was David Crow who comes on this podcast. It looked like he was on his happy pills grinning and just, where's this going to go? Looked like a hostage on happy pills. That's it, a hostage on happy pills. So I actually do think he managed that quite well. He didn't, there was, it looked like was something going to be demanded of Australia on this Iran commitment, which goes beyond what we've offered for the Strait of Hormuz. It wasn't then raised. But might these things happen later? I don't think that that's knowable at this moment, but certainly this is a president who loves to make the ask and who does make Mm. the ask and who might very well down the track. But it's important to remember that this is now a president who's going to be very distracted. Everything has just changed in Washington. 
and business as usual has just shifted. In terms of a very busy president, he's got his eye obviously on the campaign coming up and speaking mm. to his base and speaking to middle America. I thought there was a very interesting slash worrying comment from the US president at the UN Assembly this week when he talked about, it's quite an extraordinary speech really, he, he took aim at globalism. Let's have a listen. If you want freedom, take pride in your country. If you want democracy, hold on to your sovereignty. And if you want peace, love your nation. The future does not belong to globalists. The future belongs to patriots. Shades of nationalism in this speech, and one that really sent shivers down the spine of many in the United States. And really, it kind of is straight out of the Stephen Miller playbook, one of the kind of key architects of this policy within the Trump White House, but something that we have seen from this president since the earliest days of its administration and even during the campaign. This is, you know, treacherous territory in the United States, famously a land of immigrants, but one where there has been a lot of contentious conversation about this over the, in particular, the terms of this presidency. And he came in on the platform of not wanting to send Americans overseas to fight. He wanted to bring them home and stop all that. And so he is now, in a way, stepping America back from being the global policeman, from being the leader that sort of takes a lead role in, you know, assuring peace and stability in the world. That's not his job anymore. That's what the signal was from this speech, isn't it? That if you want peace, love your nation, not love your neighbour. It's a really complicated message, though, isn't it? Because at the same time that he's saying this, you know, there's tensions with Iran. There's the situation elsewhere in the Mideast. It's complicated to entirely understand that. And then there's also what's happening in the United States, ongoing questions about the wall, about immigration. All of these things are part of why this has been a huge campaign issue for this president, and you can expect that it will continue to be in 2020. And now we're seeing the very first stages of what could be, as you've alluded to a couple of times, let's get there impeachment. Nancy Pelosi announced on Wednesday the beginning of a formal impeachment inquiry into Donald Trump. The actions of the Trump presidency revealed the dishonorable fact of the president's betrayal of his oath of office, betrayal of our national security, and betrayal of the integrity of our elections. The president must be held accountable. No one is above the law. And this, of course, Sarah, is in relation to this phone call with a Ukrainian leader. And What do you make of all of this? What's going to happen? Is it really going to lead to impeachment? It certainly could. Impeachment is, in essence, an indictment. And so the impeachment would come from the House, and that would require a majority, but then it would go to a trial. If the House did vote to impeach, then it would go to the Senate for a trial. But where they are right now, Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the House, has said they're going to move expeditiously. Exactly what that means in terms of timing, we don't know. But this was a huge step, and it was really a dramatic shift for her. The Speaker had been clear she didn't want to go there. There were some firebrands within the caucus that really wanted to move to impeachment. She didn't want to. She sees it as a big risk for 2020 and that it could backfire, as we saw happen when former President Clinton was it's easy to see how it could backfire. Easy to see. And I think what tipped the balance and caused her to say we need to have this inquiry was when seven freshman lawmakers who have either intelligence backgrounds or military backgrounds wrote an op-ed piece for The Washington Post in which they said, you know what, this is it. You can't ask for dirt 
from the leader of a foreign country and have in the background that they're not getting some military aid that they'd really like to have. You can't do that. Not just ask for dirt, ask for dirt on your opponent. Yes, exactly. On your uh, on the person who's it's, leading in the polls and the person that you most fear. Can I just say, it just demonstrates how far we've moved from normal. Yes. That this has been normalised. Like the president is now saying, yeah, that doesn't this demonstrate that this was a wonderful conversation. Perfect. Perfect, perfect. 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 conversation. Perfect. conversation. Perfect. He just keeps moving that bar down, doesn't he? Exactly. And I think that Really, it was fascinating to see these people who are newer to Washington. And let's point out these freshmen who who made the call, all of which, you know, I said they had military or intelligence experience. They're brand new and they're in swing districts. They're in districts in Congress where they will have to battle hard for their seats and they could likely lose to a Republican. And they still went, no, this is it, because there's another risk for the Democrats. What happens if they don't have the inquiry? then Trump gets to say, it's fine. It's totally fine because if it weren't fine, they would have impeached me. And he would still have raised the stuff that he is raising now about former Vice President Biden, who is his chief rival. He would still have been, you know, casting dirt and saying there's an inquiry and raising questions about Biden and about his son, Hunter, regardless. So I think the Democrats were really caught in the horns of a dilemma and they decided they're going to go. And I think now they're going to go big or go home. And it really is the stuff of fiction. I mean, we we had the president just within a couple of hours of this um, sitting next to the Ukrainian leader and and talking (laughs) about this phone call. I mean, my head actually hurts watching this stuff. Yeah, because you're going, really? Yeah, that really happened. And he really just happened to be there because they're all there. They're all there. For the UN General Assembly. Of course. So everyone's there. Exactly. So that might be the stuff of fiction, but maybe for Scott Morrison it was almost the stuff of nightmare that he was standing (laughs) next to Donald Trump just sort of moments, you know, you know, days if not moments really before this happened. But he made the Ukrainian, made, mm. when the Ukrainian leader said it, to be fair, essentially say, oh, no, I didn't feel pressure. Oh, feel no pressure. No, no pressure. It was no a perfect call. And, and indeed, what was fascinating about that was actually listening to the president of Ukraine, like, what's he going to say? And then looking at the uh, summary of that conversation and the timing. So I think we're going to see all this play out. There are going to be things that happen in the next 24 to 48 hours. It's all rolling on now. How quickly that picks up steam, you can't say. But the latest count that I saw, because it's all happening as we go, is that they're at 218 in terms of supporting the inquiry, which is that's sort of the magic number in terms of potentially being able to impeach if they want to. And perhaps importantly, there's a small number, but it's growing, of Republicans who are saying this doesn't look good. There are some. There aren't a lot. So we'll see We'll see where that all uh, transpires. But it's going to be hot, 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 hot in Washington. And I have to bring you back because this is an Australian parochial podcast. Yeah, How, absolutely. As the PM makes his way home, back to Australian soil. Indeed. Where things are a little calmer. I mean, you know, he's not <laughs> Boris Johnson or Donald Trump. I mean, things are okay. It's It's better to be Scott Morrison right now. What's the optics of his meeting now as all of this happens? What does it mean for the relationship? Because as you say, the president's going to be very busy. The president's going to be busy. But I think for Scott Morrison, he is going to come back and say it went well. In other words, there were a lot of wins on the board for him. He had a lot of opportunities to meet with people at the State Department, to, to have the opening of the plant in Ohio, to be in Chicago. He was on the world stage. You can't really erase that glitter. And if there's a little tarnish, 
related to the particular president, it doesn't matter to him because I think he proved really what's the most important thing he proved. He is prime minister. You know, he won the election and now he's there on the world stage. He is a big global player. People are listening to what he has to say about China, about trade, you know, about strategy. I agree with you. I think it's invaluable, A, the one-on-one contacts with all those intelligence agencies, all those people, but also he looked prime ministerial. He didn't make a misstep. And, uh, you know, that was a problem before the election. He couldn't bring that to because no one thought he was going to be prime minister. This has really put him there. Authority. Authority. Yes, I think so. I think so. And there were some traps and he avoided them all. All right. We've avoided most of the traps too. And <laughs> I don't know. Oh, we better keep talking then. <laughs> <All right. laughs> Sarah, it's great to have you in the party room. Thank you. Pleasure. See you, Sarah. Okay, it's question time here in the party room. PK, this one from Declan. Declan says, have you ever asked a politician for a running commentary? Do you know what a bubble question is? Is saying repeatedly, that's gossip and answer? Most politicians say this, but Scott Morrison is a master at not answering questions. It does my head in that important questions are avoided in this way. Is there any way to call this out? PK, this is our challenge. Uh, Look, absolutely there's a way, and that's called being a relentless journalist. And I think the journalists are doing that. In fact, I'll give you the example of where they did that. They didn't ultimately get the answer, but I suppose in not getting the answer, they got the answer. And that was in relation to the Prime Minister's pastor allegedly getting invited to this White House dinner. Oh, PK, that's gossip. Right? Exactly. So the Prime Minister gets asked and he says, on this trip, it's gossip, which I think Declan's alluding to. Mm -hmm. And then the journalist, I don't know who it was, says, yes, but is it true? Yes, but is it true? Keep saying it's gossip. He says it's gossip so many times when given the opportunity to say whether it's true or not, because, of course, gossip can be true or false, declines. And we know that that means, I'm sorry, that's a confirmation. Because he didn't say no. It's uncomfortable, right, when they walk off. So in a weird way, by doing that, they got the answer. Is it frustrating? Absolutely. We find it very frustrating. Is the Prime Minister the master of it? I think it's fair to say he is. He's very good at it. And he probably thinks it's one of his best political skills that he can keep it on themes he wants to keep it on and avoid answering things that he doesn't want to answer. Eventually, in that example, I actually think the journalism won. Yes, and during the election campaign, the Prime Minister did use the bubble shield very effectively. And I think actually he got the better of the media's by and large through that mechanism during the election because he managed to sort of say, well, that's not an issue, that's a bubble question, this is what's for the election campaign. But I think everyone's sort of awake to this now. So I really think the best strategy, if you're interviewing the Prime Minister and he goes to that line, is to say, Prime Minister, Australians listening want to know the answer to this. You know, they're not in the bubble, so they want to know Mm. this. You know, you've got to think about how to bring something back to the politician you're interviewing when they're trying to deflect like this that really makes them responsible for giving an answer. That is their job. They should be answering questions to the public. And I want to sort of tip my hat to the press gallery because they're often criticised, but I've seen on this trip quite relentless questioning. I thought the gossip question was great, the way people went, hang on a minute, but is it true? And they did that. So people can bag journalists, but actually they are trying to cut through that. And by doing that, they actually got what I think was an answer. All right, that's it for us. We're going to take a little mini break next week, just for one week, just one, and then we'll be back. But Fran, in the meantime, people can talk about this podcast or any of our episodes using the Twitter handle, The Party Room. And you can send us your questions. You can email them to thepartyroom at abc.net.au. You can rate, review and subscribe, of course. Please do that. Absolutely do that. We'll see you in a week or two. See you, PK. See you, Fran. 
No, you have to say, see a friend. God, just so dogmatic. Come on. All right. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio, and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.